Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a threat of sanctions being levelled against Russia to deter what many see as a likely military invasion of Ukraine and get an analysis of whether sanctions work and how much they are a feel-good measure to placate domestic pressures since a war with a nuclear power is off the table. Joining us is Nicholas Mulder, a professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to Foreign Policy and the Nation. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. And we will discuss his article at Foreign Policy, How America Learned to Love Ineffective Sanctions. We will assess what effect cutting Russia off from the swift global cooperative of financial institutions will have and whether going after Putin's estimated $150 billion stashed abroad will be effective. Then we'll look into the disputed history of NATO expansion eastward, which both Putin and his Foreign Minister Lavrov often refer to, quoting Bush Sr.'s former Secretary of State James Baker's conversation with Gorbachev in February of 1990, shortly after the Berlin Wall came down, in which Baker floated the hypothetical of what kind of unified Germany would be acceptable, mentioning the option of NATO not shifting, quote, one inch eastward. Joining us is Timothy Sale, Professor of History and Director of the International Relations Program at the University of Toronto. He is the author of Enduring Alliance, A History of NATO and the Post-War Global Order, and he has co-edited two volumes, The Last Card, Inside George W. Bush's Decision to Surge into Iraq, and The Nuclear North, Histories of Canada in the Atomic Age. We'll discuss how Russia and America's interpretation of history differs sharply and decades later, even though President Bush Sr. immediately shot down Baker's one-inch remark, it is now at the heart of Putin's justification for threatening war with Ukraine. Then finally, following North Korea's latest missile test, we will speak with Jessica Lee, a senior research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include U.S. foreign policy towards the Indo-Pacific region, with an emphasis on alliances and North Korea. A non-resident senior associate fellow at the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she has testified before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and joins us to discuss the need to resume talks with North Korea at a higher level and rumours surrounding Kim Jong-un's dramatic weight loss. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Nicholas Mulder, who is a professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to foreign policy and the nation. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, How America Learned to Love Ineffective Sanctions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicholas Mulder. Thanks very much for having me on. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And how would you describe the economic weapon as a part of the range of weapons now that exist between the threshold of what the Pentagon called kinetic war, in other words, shooting and bombing. And that simply reflects what we have now with Ukraine. It hasn't come to a shooting war yet, but there's a lot of psychological pressure. In fact, the other day, the president of Ukraine accused Putin of being a sadomasochist in taunting uh, the country and creating this hysteria, which to some extent uh, Zelensky blamed on the West, saying it's having a terrible effect on the economy. I imagine there's a lot of capital flight coming out of Ukraine, which is hurting the economy. So if you combine all of those in what I guess what Putin calls hybrid warfare, below the threshold, you've got cyber, you've got economic warfare, you've got propaganda, information war. How does economic war fit into that? lexicon. Yeah, so economic sanctions are a form of what we actually today call gray zone warfare, but they've existed long before that term emerged in the last few years. And in my book, I show how after World War One, they were first created as a way actually of preventing worse escalations in the use of force and actually preventing war between countries. But I think after 1945, with the rise of American power, a kind of rearrangement of the hierarchy of the use of force emerged, in which sanctions are now a, a sort of mid-tier instrument that you can use if you want to put more pressure on a country than simply making diplomatic moves or uh, inducements with things like foreign aid, but if you want to stay below the threshold of, of uh, kinetic warfare. But I've uh, heard suggestions from some analysts that the Treasury Department's red notices, which are sanctions, economic sanctions, um, in many ways are more powerful a tool than the enormous number of uh, tools that the Pentagon has in its arsenal. How would you describe red notices in that context? I think that sanctions can definitely have a really strong impact. And certainly for the civilian societies on the receiving end of firm and harsh sanctions, sanctions that have a more or less total effect on the economy of the target country, they can arguably be worse than certain forms, right, of kinetic warfare, such as airstrikes or uh, small uh, incursions or skirmishes. But on the whole, it really depends on how the sanctions are calibrated. There are many different kinds. You have smaller ones on individuals, and it can broaden out to sectoral sectors of, of a country's industry to even an entire embargo on, on trade, such as we have with certain countries as well in the United States. And I think that it really depends basically on, on, on the severity. They can be moved up and down in that scale. And I do think that it ultimately also depends a lot on what you want to achieve by them. If you combine sanctions with diplomacy, they appear a lot softer. If you use them as a substitute for war, really as a kind of economic war instrument, and you also don't expect any behavioral change from the target, then I think they come to appear a lot harsher. Well, there was a bit of a reaction from Putin at the suggestion, in fact, Biden has made that suggestion, that they might sanction Putin in terms of his own personal private wealth, which he has stashed aboard, a lot of it through his cutouts, uh, some of his closest friends going back to his days in St. Petersburg. Is that realistic? I mean, uh, there have been estimates, the Atlantic Council estimates, that Putin has $150 billion at least stashed abroad. It could have definitely an effect, obviously, on his 
assets, the, the amount of wealth that he has at his direct disposal. But I do think it's important to remember that he remains the head of government in Russia, even if that were to happen. He'll have the powers of the entire Russian state still very much at his disposal. So I do think that in the immediate term, that won't necessarily have a major effect. It really very much depends on uh, his calculus. And uh, I mean, my guess is as good as anyone else's at this point, uh, what's, what's going on in that regard. Well, there's already been talk of cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system in Belgium, which is uh, SWIFT stands for the Society of Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, which is a Belgium uh, messaging service that connects more than 11,000 financial institutions around the world. Uh, since 2014, uh, the Russians have been trying to figure out a way to have an alternative to SWIFT. So cutting off Russia would be a big move, nothing that SWIFT has done so far. I mean, they're obviously, they've cut the Iranians off. So what kind of effect would that have if it were to come to that? It would definitely make it much more difficult in the short run for Russia to conduct most of its trade with other countries. And in that regard, the immediate impact could be quite severe. But at the same time, there will be uh, this as you mentioned, alternative domestic payment system to fall back on. So for many domestic uh, financial transactions, it won't have an immediate effect. And I also think that uh, most analysts who have looked into this, I think, have concluded that in uh, the medium run, certainly most of the international connections can also be jury-rigged back into existence using other means. Uh, in the end, SWIFT is uh, a system of, of trust between the member banks, but it is a messaging system. It doesn't mean that there is no ability to conclude any sort of financial transactions between other countries. And there's other, you know, more old-fashioned ways uh, of doing that with telex machines, etc. So if the Russians really want to, they could probably find some way of coping with it. That doesn't mean that it won't be very disruptive. But I also think that it's not really the silver bullet that it's sometimes made out to be in these debates. But could it backfire in terms of payments for uh, oil and gas to Europe? How is that going to be transacted? Yeah, that would certainly be an important one. And uh, I definitely think that European countries, for that reason, have proven quite hesitant to embrace the SWIFT cutoff as a, a serious sanction in the package right now. But the other thing that's important to remember is that Russia, in general, is a very important commodity exporter in world markets, not just in oil and gas to Europe, but also in aluminium, where it has about 8% of the world market. It exports about 12% of the world's oil, 19% of the world's natural gas, and 18% of the world's wheat. If you add Ukrainian wheat supplies to that, you get to somewhere around one-fifth of the world's wheat that comes from Russia and Ukraine together. Uh, even if only the Russian share of that is cut out of SWIFT, which is a sizable chunk, more than a sixth of global supply, that now goes to the Middle East, where it actually sustains the ability of societies like Egypt and Lebanon, etc., to feed itself. So I think the international consequences on those societies are also significant, and they should also be part of the conversation. And again, I'm speaking with Nicholas Mulder, who's a professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to foreign policy and the nation. He's the author of the new book just out, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. And he has an article on foreign policy, How America Learned to Love Ineffective Sanctions. So following on from ineffective sanctions, uh, I wish Saddam Hussein was not hurt by sanctions. And you've got the horrendous dictatorship in Zimbabwe, which is a failed state with unbelievable inflation and tremendous pain and suffering going on with the poor beleaguered people. 
Mugabe never budged, and uh, it doesn't look like the, the crocodile, his success is going to budge. There have been sanctions against Venezuela, against Maduro, and he's still in power. So some of the arguments I've heard in the past suggest that sanctions are more of a way for the countries that are sanctioning, like the United States, those that are imposing sanctions, it's a way, a kind of palliative, a feel-good for them, that they feel that they're actually doing something, when in fact they can't really take things any further, particularly in terms of military action. So is that why it's become popular? And, and has it sort of become a tool to make us feel good about what we're doing in the absence of us being able to do anything really punitive like going to war? There's definitely a lot of domestic pressure in Western countries when human rights abuses take place to do something and sanctions there, right, because of that exact mid-tier position that they have in the hierarchy of force have proven to be quite attractive and in many cases also low cost when it concerns small countries. Putting sanctions on Zimbabwe that you mentioned is not going to necessarily have an immediate negative repercussion for sanctioning countries in the West. But the other thing is that they uh, have also not proven really good at dislodging these regimes. And I think that's a very interesting question why that is. Part of it has to do with the opportunities that globalization offers for evasion and things like smuggling and also what you see increasingly, the sharing of a kind of sanctions busting knowledge between countries, between Iran, Venezuela, Russia, China, Syria, uh, and, and North Korea. And um, on top of that, um, I also think it has something to do with the goals that we set for them. Sometimes, indeed, it's very symbolic. In, that, in those cases, they hardly hurt. You could uh, think of some of the sanctions also against Belarus right now, against Lukashenko. They inflict some cost, but ultimately, I don't really think that any Western policymakers expect that they will bring down the regime. And it, Belarus is an important case because they're actually one of the only countries recently where we've seen somewhat of a cohesive opposition movement. And that's another really important part of the equation that I think is often left out. We focus very much on the technical details of these sanctions measures, on including this measure or that measure, and trying to find these very small minutiae in, in the structure of globalization. But oftentimes, what is just as important to the chances of success of sanctions is whether there's actually a political agent in the country that is being targeted that could potentially benefit from the pressure being exerted. When such an agent, such an opposition movement is absent or is not in a position to really act, and in the last, I think, two decades, you've seen generally uh, less political mobilization, less ability of protest movements to craft durable new uh, power structures. In those cases, actually, sanctions can inflict lots of pain, but they don't open the way to any political improvement, let alone a viable path to regime change. So back to Ukraine. I mentioned earlier President Zelensky's concerns about what he described, for example, when the um, Western diplomats left Kiev, he said, you know, that the captains should not leave the sinking ship and Ukraine is not the Titanic. And uh, he's obviously concerned about capital flight out of the country because his economy is pretty shaky to begin with. So at this point, Putin seems to be getting a lot out of simply destabilizing the country, does he not? If he goes to war, he's going to pay a heavy price, not to mention the incredibly heavy price that the Ukrainian people will pay. Uh, but short of going to war, he seems to be being able to really destabilize that country and, and hurt its economy. So 
what tools are they to counter those kind of pressures? In other words, we're not sanctioning Putin, although there's talk now in the Senate to start sanctioning him already, and there's even talk at the White House to doing that, but he's not being sanctioned now. But he's definitely conducting economic warfare, is he not? And psychological warfare and cyber warfare. And the FSB, his intelligence service, are phoning in bomb threats to Ukrainian schools and malls, etc. So he's already basically at war with Ukraine. So is there any any way to stop that or any way to bolster Ukraine's defenses short of military defenses? There's definitely a lot of pressure being exerted by Russia on Ukraine right now in all these ways that you just enumerated. One way I think that we could help Ukraine is to provide better and much more targeted economic assistance. There's been a big emphasis on military aid. I think that while in some degrees important, that also kind of misses that in the short term, we're not going to be able to write the kind of military balance of the turns between Ukraine and Russia. And the real thing that the Ukraine conflict, I think, shows is that uh, Ukraine as a country has had almost three decades of very stagnant, uh, even declining living standards. They've not been able to reap the benefits uh, there uh, of the uh, end of the Soviet Union as much, even as Russia itself. And they've continued to really kind of languish in a, a situation of economic stagnation. They sorely need long-term investment. But the risk of war, of course, is deterring that at the moment. And in that sense, yes, the Russian threat is destabilizing the Ukrainian economy. One of the things that the West can do is to, for example, come in and actually guarantee things like insurance. Insurance costs are an important thing that right now are preventing Western investors also from entering Ukraine. Some private companies actually are, uh, insurers are not offering insurance anymore for that. The other uh, thing besides uh, targeted aid for Ukraine, and, and I think economic um, and civilian really investment in things like infrastructure, things that can get a positive long-term growth cycle back, is that I also think we need to think about the conflict in the long run. There is a peace agreement, Minsk II, we uh, should, I think, also pursue ways that both the Ukrainians and the Russians could be uh, made to uh, take a further interest in that. And indeed, there have been talks uh, that have been ongoing in these last few weeks. I still remain very optimistic, actually, that we can find some kind of diplomatic solution to this. I think the issue is to disentangle some of the demands made on both sides and to try and pursue them on parallel tracks. And the other thing that's worth uh, thinking about right now is that since the threat of sanctions against Russia is unlikely to have any big or credible short-term effect. And even if sanctions are brought into effect now, they're probably not likely to immediately cause Russia to revert course. For that reason, I think we should think more creatively about what we can do with the sanctions already in place. And particularly, I think Russia has shown itself to be interested in long-term relief of sanctions. They, they are annoying. They are hurting their economy in a variety of ways. They are depressing living standards. There is a possibility, I think, of a tit-for-tat um, concession uh, by the Russians in, in certain key areas in return for a credible promise of sanctions lifting. So that's also something that ought to be explored. But in the last minute, Nicholas, it's obvious that <laughs> you're not going to get insurance companies into Ukraine as long as there's a threat of war, right? So Exactly. Yeah. But that's you know, why I think the de-escalation uh, is, is the thing that's the most important thing. And one of the reasons why the, the economy in Ukraine has been in dire straits for so long, not to mention the fact that Russia's been at war against the country since 2014, destabilizing its east, 
is the corruption in the side the, inside the country. So it can hardly get its act together as long as it's under threat of war. Yes. So th th that's, I think, why we need to pursue this dual approach of better and, and actually economic long-term investment for Ukraine with a serious and, and sustained negotiation with Russia about what sort of measures could lead to de-escalation. Well, Nicholas Mulder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Mulder, who's a professor of modern European history at Cornell University and a regular contributor to Foreign Policy and the Nation. He's the author of the new book just out, The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, How America Learned to Love Ineffective Sanctions. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the disputed history of NATO expansion and former Secretary of State James Breaker's mentioning of NATO not shifting one inch eastward, which both Putin and his Foreign Minister Lavrov often refer to. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There is nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's a countenance that makes the world go round, 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 round. You can keep your watch's ways, for it's only just a phase. Money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Timothy Sale, who's a professor of history and the director of the International Relations Program at the University of Toronto. He is the author of Enduring Alliance, A History of NATO and the Postwar Global Order, and has co-edited two volumes, The Last Card, Inside George W. Bush's Decision to Surge in Iraq, and The Nuclear North, Histories of Canada in the Atomic Age. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Sale. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov has been writing letters to uh, the leader of Canada and President of the United States, other European countries, reminding them of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in, in Europe having, back in 1999, made an agreement in Istanbul saying that countries will not strengthen their security at the expense of the security of other states. And Putin himself has made this uh, quote again after his uh, meeting with Hungary's Orban. So this seems to be the new narrative here coming from Russia. So what kind of veracity is there to that claim? Well, you're right. There does seem to be a constantly shifting target here presented by Moscow. The idea of the indivisibility of security is decades old. And of course, it's this idea that states shouldn't strengthen their security at the expense of others. Um, but it's a difficult proposition for the Russians to put forward, of course, having uh, invaded Ukraine um, in, in 2014. Um, it's intriguing, too, because the, the Russian position cuts here against a number of other agreements to which uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia since have been party. Um, in 1975, at the Helsinki Final Act, um, the countries of Europe that would go on to form the OSCE agreed that sovereign states had a choice of which alliance to join, and the, the Russians have constantly reaffirmed this. Um, on a related note, in 1994, 
the Russians agreed in the in the Budapest memorandum to respect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. So there seems to be quite a bit of cherry picking going on here. So given the, the, the central complaint that Putin has, and Blinken, the Secretary of State, referred to it, is, is that the U.S. and Russia have different ideas about history. So this is still a part of that broader problem, right? The history going back to, of course, to the 1990s. And again, Putin referred to the 1990s, the idea that somehow the U.S. made some kind of deal not to explain NATO eastward in conversation between Secretary of State Baker and Gorbachev and later reinforced during the Yeltsin period. So let's sort of zero in on that, on the two different interpretations of history. There seems to be enough kind of gray area here that you can't categorically say that one side is right and the other side is is wrong? Or How do you see it, Timothy? Yes, I, this all, I think, stems around a conversation in February 1990 between the U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and the, the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, and it's this this famous pledge that NATO would not move eastward. And this is something that uh, President Putin has brought up many times since. But there really is um, a historical record here now. It's been declassified um, in the United States. Uh, there are German records, even Russian records made available. I think we need to start with that February 1990 conversation and recognize that it was a discussion between Baker and Gorbachev about the future of Germany, about the future of a potentially unified Germany. And so Gorbachev and Baker were speaking about how there could once again be a unified Germany in the heart of Europe. And in this conversation, Baker speculated about this idea that Germany could be unified, uh, could be a part of NATO, but that NATO would not move east. And what's remarkable is that this idea was put forward by Baker, but it actually was contradicted that very day by National Security Council officials in Washington who got a hold of Baker and said this doesn't fit with President Bush's plan. But Baker, after mentioning this idea to Gorbachev, had also shared it with the German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, and so this idea gained its own momentum. But it's crucial to recognize it was only a, a hypothetical discussion about Germany, not about the future of NATO and where unified Germany would sit. And before the end of 1990, of course, the Soviets had agreed that Germany would be unified, that a unified Germany would be a part of NATO. And this idea that Germany wouldn't move east in NATO uh, really is something of a red herring, I think. So specifically in February of 1990, Secretary Baker met with Gorbachev, I guess, in the Kremlin. And Baker basically, unwittingly, I guess, touched off this controversy that's now with us, and it's the heart of Putin's excuses about why he is doing what he's doing, whatever that is, because he never really made it clear exactly what his intentions are, but he certainly got everybody's attention. Apparently, what Baker said was to Gorbachev, quote, would you prefer to see a unified Germany outside of NATO, independent and with no U.S. forces, 
Or would you prefer a unified Germany to be tied to NATO with assurances that NATO jurisdiction would not shift one inch eastward from its present position? And, and of course, to put this in context, this is only months after the Berlin Wall fell, right, Timothy? That's right. That's exactly right. This is a uh, a really fluid and fast-moving situation. It's also not just a situation of bilateral diplomacy between the Soviets and the United States, but it's, there's trilateral diplomacy. Chancellor Kohl of Germany is involved in discussions with the Americans and uh, with the Russians, uh, Soviets, and as is the German foreign minister. So what this evolves into just in the next um, series of weeks is the idea that a unified Germany will join NATO, but that NATO troops and NATO nuclear weapons would not move east within this unified Germany. Um, and this becomes sort of the core of the agreement um, between uh, the major states of Europe and uh, the two parts of Germany on the road to unification. And of course, you've pointed this out, but it's worth, again, emphasizing that Baker's boss, President George H.W. Bush, strongly opposed it and, and shut it down immediately, right? That's right. That's right. And there's a follow-up to this, of course. In May of 1990, Gorbachev visits uh, the White House. He comes to Washington, D.C., and in a discussion with President Bush, it's at, at that point that Gorbachev um, agrees with the proposition put forward by President Bush that a unified Germany would have the right under the 1975 Helsinki Final Act to choose its own alliance and therefore to be um, a, a part of NATO. And what's, what's crucial here to understand is that the other Soviet observers in the room understood precisely what Gorbachev was agreeing to. And some of them were hugely frustrated by this. There's records of, of some uh, one Soviet officer yelling at another Soviet officer on the grounds of the White House, another saying they had just lost World War III without a shot. So there we have Gorbachev really explicitly agreeing to the idea of Germany in NATO. And that's really the next step that comes after this one-inch comment. We, we have to see the broader context of German unification here. And later in September of 1990, Gorbachev signed off on the Treaty of the Final Settlement with respect to Germany. So I've often talked to Russian experts and, and many who were involved in some of these decisions, like the National Intelligence Officers and others. Um, Winston Churchill talked about being magnanimous in victory. And the criticism of the U.S. and the West, I think it's legitimate, isn't it? There was an element on, on the American side that when the Cold War collapsed and the Soviet Union disintegrated of, to put it in American football terms, dancing in the end zone. Do, would you agree with that? I think we have to decide on our lens, our sort of context here. If we're thinking about the 1990s as a whole or these first few years after the Berlin Wall fell, because... Uh, George H.W. Bush himself actually got in quite a bit of trouble with the press for seeming to be too blasé about the fall of the wall um, and, and the, the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And he said he didn't want to dance upon the wall, but he did ensure that NATO remained in place. Um, and I think it's when we draw back the lens to look at the decade of the 90s, 
and especially the policies that come under the next president, President Clinton. That's where I think we got sharper relief and see the Americans pushing forward on a policy um, that, that clearly the Russians did not and do not like. And they felt that they were sort of humiliated and they had to sign it because of, in Yeltsin's case, because they were broke. So right, right. can you make the argument that, you know, we fought the Cold War, we spent trillions and trillions of dollars, we almost had a nuclear war on a number of occasions, we were incredibly lucky to get through this era, and yet we didn't secure the victory. Is that a legitimate argument? Well, I... I... I hear that argument, and I, I am I sympathize with it. But overall, I think that Europe since 1990 things have been good. Um, there have been wars, of course, but no return to general war. Uh, we have an awful crisis right now, and the potential for a, a true and, and brutal war, of course. But I think it's a question of trade-offs. Um, I'm more worried, I guess, about what the 1990s and 2000s would have looked like if this large corridor of states, uh, these former Warsaw Pact states uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, um, had had no security affiliation. Uh, what worried the American officials at the end of the Cold War was whether Europe would create this sort of rickety system of half-baked security guarantees that had preceded uh, the First World War. So while there are tensions today, I am, I am yet to see a very strong counterfactual of just how the 90s and 2000s could have been different. There, there are some other choices that could have been made for sure, but I'm not one who thinks that this period was one of tremendous error. Well, the Russians, of course, see the introduction into the market economy and capitalism largely through the lens of the catastrophe of the collapse of the economy and people losing their savings. And it subsequently, of course, become a kind of kleptocracy under Putin. And frankly, Putin offers gangster government. That's what he has at home with him and the Siloviki robbing the country blind. And as a result, he needs to have these distractions like hyper-nationalism and military adventures. And at this point, I'm astounded at the extent to which people are swallowing uh, in the West somehow that it's our problem, it's our fault, it's NATO's problem, it's NATO's fault. Here he is having invaded Ukraine twice, once seizing Crimea and, and then again destabilizing the whole east flank there in the Donbass. And, and what, the Ukrainians have had 14,000 dead as a result. Uh, now they're being threatened with a total invasion. And yet Putin's saying it's all our fault and, and we're responsible. And the analogy I would make is that it's like Putin burns down his neighbor's house and then tells the people across the street that it's their fault, that they're responsible. So right. I mean, can you change that narrative? I mean, the reason I brought up the dancing in the end zone and the fact that we never secured the, the so-called victory in the Cold War is largely because of the attitudes of the Russian people. You know, obviously they're under constant propaganda, but to some extent they accept Putin's notion of humiliation and he gets some support. I don't know how much it is, but we're not talking directly to the Russian people, are we? At least in any effective no. way. No, that's exactly right. I, 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 have, I fully agree that the Russian leadership is using NATO 
enlargement as sort of a lever here to make an argument to present a boogeyman, if you will, to present a threat. But I do think the origins of this current crisis and the military buildup on the Ukrainian border, the threats against Ukraine, uh, there, there's not a clear and direct line from NATO enlargement in the 1990s to that. Uh, it's, it's much more complicated. And as you point out, um, I think there are individual motives in the person of President Putin and, and his um, personal sense of, of what's important to him, um, but also to domestic politics play a role. Um, I, I think we saw COVID present a major problem to the Russians and the president needs a win in response. I think that Putin needs a victory and needs a win for personal and domestic political reasons. And so he's seeking one here. Um, and I think that is why the different arguments and explanations for the military buildup keep changing and are so difficult to pin down. Uh, this is about creating a crisis to try and find success um, rather than some single explanation from a historical conversation in February, 1990. But just in the last minute, does that mean then, Timothy, that war is inevitable, as President Biden seemed to think that it's going to happen in February. We're already in February. Putin, of course, is going on Friday to Beijing for the opening of the Olympics, so it probably won't happen till later in the month, if it has happened at all. Has Putin dug a hole for himself for that very reason that you just stated? And can he therefore right, not that's... back down? My fear here is that he has put himself in a position where he cannot exit uh, without um, trying to seek military victory. And, and it will be a horrible war, whatever scale uh, it, it's fought on. Um, but I, And I'm not optimistic. I don't think war is guaranteed, but I am not optimistic because I haven't seen the Russians ask for anything that they could truly be given, if you will, by the Ukrainians, by NATO, by the Americans. And so I'm worried that the situation has been ratcheted up so high uh, that President Putin will have no choice but to use military force or lose face. I hope very much that I'm wrong, but that's my gut assumption. Well, Timothy Saylor, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Timothy Sale, who's a professor of history and the director of the International Relations Program at the University of Toronto. He is the author of Enduring Alliance, a history of NATO and the post-war global order. And he's co-edited two volumes, The Last Card, Inside George W. Bush's Decision to Surge in Iraq, and The Nuclear North, Histories of Canada in the Atomic Age. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into North Korea's latest missile test and rumors surrounding Kim Jong-un's dramatic weight loss. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jessica Lee, a senior research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include U.S. foreign policy towards the Indo-Pacific region, with an emphasis on alliances and North Korea. 
a non-resident senior associate fellow at the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She has testified before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jessica Lee. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining. And uh, the North Korean missile test uh, on Sunday where they launched Haswasong-12 ballistic missile, which is they had previously threatened U.S. territory of Guam with, has alarmed U.S. officials. There's a kind of standing offer for low-level talks with North Korea. But in your opinion, should the United States now get more serious and have higher-level talks? Obviously, Kim Jong-un is sort of signaling, isn't he, that he wants some attention here. And obviously, U.S. attention is somewhat distracted over Ukraine. So should the U.S. step up here and start talking to... Kim Jong-un? Right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, as you said, uh, North Korea's uh, intermediate-range ballistic missile that can reach U.S. territory of Guam uh, is a a major development. Uh, It's certainly the most significant missile test since 2017, uh, when you'll recall uh, Kim Jong-un threatened to make an enveloping fire (laughs) near Guam with the Hwasong-12 missiles that you mentioned. Uh, And Hwasong-12 missile, as you know, is a nuclear-capable ground-to-ground weapon that can reach 2,800 miles, which includes bomb in its parameter. So I think, you know, this is a very serious uh, and high profile uh, signal by North Korea. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that, you know, the missile tests that we've seen in January are actually a feature rather than a bug in North Korea's efforts to really force a discussion uh, on the realities of its military capabilities. Rather than maintaining the status quo by squeezing North Korea ever more and threatening uh, it with greater sanctions uh, that will frankly only benefit its government by legitimizing its threat narrative, I think it's more important to focus now on you know what sort of uh, diplomatic uh, efforts can be undertaken. It doesn't have to be in the public's eyes initially. Uh, it could be quiet. Uh, you know, uh, track two level, uh, et cetera. But there has to be a way to break the current impasse, uh, which is uh, creating a great deal of instability. And and this is not a path that uh, the United States and the American public uh, wants uh, and certainly uh, deserves uh, greater and higher level diplomatic attention. So I mentioned uh, the U.S. being distracted over Ukraine. Vladimir Putin, of course, is showing up in Beijing for the opening of the Olympics on Friday and already China is uh, supporting uh, Russia's position on uh, Ukraine. But then there's been some speculation that if Russia were to uh, do a full-scale military attack on Ukraine, that might offer an opportunity for China, while the U.S. and NATO is distracted, going after Taiwan. So how does do you see Kim Jong-un fitting into that scenario? In other words... Short of China taking advantage of U.S. distractions, could Kim Jong-un in any way take advantage of U.S. distractions? Well, I think, you know, as you laid out, there is uh, clearly a very uh, important set of issues that uh, the Biden administration is trying to tackle as we speak, uh, not just the Russia-Ukraine standoff, but also uh, Iran and, and the nuclear deal there and resuscitating JCPOA. So, you know, on those two issues alone, which are so politically fraught uh, and are going to uh, be extremely uh, difficult to navigate here in Washington, I think the the, the signal that uh, Pyongyang is sending is, look, this is the path uh, that you should be familiar with uh, because we were on this path. 
you know, in 2017. And, you know, it was really when uh, President Trump did the very unconventional but pragmatic thing, which is to reach out and have a wide ranging talk uh, with North Korea. And uh, unfortunately, even that uh, even though that talk uh, didn't materialize in a deal, uh, we know um, through John Bolton's books and others uh, sources that, you know, they, it was actually close um, and that Steve Began and others in the Trump administration were really working very diligently to try to secure a deal. Uh, that this all really comes down to the amount of political uh, and diplomatic resource any administration is willing to place, uh, because none of these issues are solvable uh, without, you know, there being uh, dedicated attention, not just a couple of, or dozens of people in the administration, but hundreds of people working uh, on this issue. And I think we're seeing that on the Iran issue, certainly, and the Russia issue. Uh, but, but we need more uh, from State Department and uh, elsewhere uh, within the U.S. government to really uh, to, uh, to, to break this deadlock uh, and to avoid what is a very predictable scenario, which I think is going to lead to North Korea testing and ICBM uh, to ratchet up the pressure even more. Uh, so this is not a good path uh, to be on and certainly uh, requires, I think, more immediate and high level intervention. And again, I'm speaking with Jessica Lee, who's a senior research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include U.S. foreign policy towards the Indo-Pacific region, with an emphasis on alliances and North Korea, a non-resident senior associate fellow at the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She has testified before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. So is there a problem then here because of what Trump did. In other words, Trump is kryptonite to the Biden administration. And remember, when Trump came in, anything that Obama did, he would undo. So is Biden dropping the ball there that Trump, as you mentioned, according to John Bolton and others, actually made some progress, even though at the end of the day, they came up empty handed, that there should have been a follow on. And that, that's the point you're making and that the Biden administration should recognize that there's an opening there. Exactly. Yes. And that's something that I've written about, you know, in terms of really, um, you know, maximizing and taking advantage of what the Trump administration left behind and using uh, the, the, you know, the arguments uh, and the political support from Republicans, uh, you know, that were there uh, during uh, the Trump-Kim uh, dip- diplomatic, you know, uh, time period. I'm using that to, you know, the uh, Biden's advantage, uh, but we're not seeing that. You know, we're seeing this sort of uh, very risk averse. Uh, you know, we're not going to do anything until they make the first move. And by the way, the first move has to be so uh, big and consequential and irreversible. Um, so, you know, it, it's basically saying uh, we're not going to even try <laughs> because the, the the bar is too high. But it's it's a unforced error. You know, it's a bar we're creating uh, ourselves. Uh, why start, you know, with uh, sort of the perfect uh, when you have so many steps uh, in the, you know, in the beginning, in the interim stage to build trust, uh, build confidence uh, and actually, you know, think through what a framework for denuclearization looks like, uh, because there's a, a great deal of confusion right now in terms of what uh, U.S. and North Korea mean, uh, you know, when it says uh, it is willing to denuclearize or give up its nuclear weapons. So there are a lot of you know, I think basic uh, level of understanding that just isn't there. Uh, and so, you know, taking advantage again of the Trump administration diplomats uh, work and ensuring, you know, support uh, from both sides of the aisle in Congress uh, to come up with a pragmatic uh, solution 
uh, I think makes a, a whole lot of sense uh, and would certainly uh, remove us from this, uh, you know, uh, I think a slow moving train wreck, so to speak, in terms of a potential clash between Washington and Pyongyang. And that potential clash is likely to happen because of this vacuum, right? That the U.S. is not showing any interest. And if you ignore Kim Jong-un, eventually he's going to uh, rattle your cage, right? And you, That's and exactly right. Yeah. Yes. He, and he's fired these missiles, tested this missile that could hit Guam with a nuclear weapon, and he could go further, right? He could do uh, an ICBM test that could reach the United States. He could even do a nuclear right. test. So, right. in other words... The longer we we ignore him, the more likely he is to sort of act up, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the key here is, you know, we've had uh, deterrence, uh, economic pressure and sanctions and diplomatic isolation and a whole other range of tools that have been in place to try to shape North Korea's uh, decisions and, and actions. Uh, but, you know, his, the latest uh, episode shows that clearly they're not enough. Uh, and I think it's because we have not paid enough attention to address the equally important goals of peace building and improving relations between U.S. and North Korea, which technically remain, you know, as enemies of the Korean War, because then that, that war never formally closed and it never ended. There was never a peace treaty. So we're in this sort of uh, protracted state of conflict and, um, you know, misgiving and mistrust that has, uh, you know, uh, been running through decades. And so this is an incredibly complex issue, uh, one that, you know, I think uh, will always be with us until uh, we recognize that this is not some niche technical kind of uh, nuclear problem that is only going to be solved by nuclear scientists, uh, but is actually a political problem, uh, one that requires a more comprehensive approach. So what is going on with Kim Jong-un himself in terms of his health? There's been this peculiar documentary that was shown on North Korean television that seemed to ad address these rumors of his ailing health. He certainly lost a lot of weight. What do you make of that? In other words, I mean, earlier on he had, had a noticeable limp uh, and lots of sort of North Korean watchers were making all kinds of interpretations of that, but it's pretty obvious that he's lost a lot of weight. Is there any sense that there are some serious health problems with the North Korean leader? Yes, I, I too have been tracking, you know, this uh, development. I mean, he, as you noted, you know, um, had a rapid weight loss, it seems. Um, I think he shed more than 40 pounds uh, over the summer uh, last year and just, uh, you know, emerged uh, last month looking noticeably thinner and gaunt. Um, and so, you know, the question is, is what may be going on? Is he okay? Is there something, um, you know, that should be concerning us from a leadership vacuum perspective? Um, unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't have a good sense, at least through publicly available information in terms of what may be contributing to this. Um, you know, the, the spin, of course, in North Korea uh, state media is that he is looking this way because he is so uh, he's working so hard, working overtime <laughs> to try to. Uh, you know, shore up his economy and, and help the impoverished nation overcome this in, intense period of lockdown um, and extreme drop in trade uh, with its biggest uh, trading partner, China. So we don't know, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, what may be uh, going on. But, uh, you know, I think this uh, this is just another reminder that, you know, a, a nuclear, uh, a country that possesses nuclear weapons 
that sees us as, as a hostile power um you know we need to know more <laughs> about what is going on uh why do they do what they do uh, and we need to have more reliable and consistent channels of communication otherwise you know we're going to be sort of grasping uh you know in the dark uh for information uh, and we may not be able to catch uh, relevant information and signals that could really uh, be life or death. I think this is just a, yet another reason why we need more uh, political level conversations, more diplomatic, uh, you know, openings and, uh, you know, ways of communicating uh, so that we can at least be aware of what each other's up to. But do you think, uh, Jessica Lee, that Kim Jong-un wants to improve the lives of his people? He must know what an extraordinary contrast it is between North Korea and South Korea. I mean, the, South Korea is an incredibly prosperous country, and North Korea is such a basket case. So is there an opening there for him to want to improve the lives of the North Koreans, and therefore the West could help in that regard, surely? Well, certainly this is a uh, complex question, uh, because we know that uh, countries uh, internationally have offered COVID uh, assistance and vaccines, and North Korea has been very reluctant to open its borders uh, and allow for transparency and delivery of aid. And so, uh, it, it is a it, it is a problem, um, you know. And I think uh, the North Korean regime's kind of track record on, you know, its management of its economy uh, speaks for itself. So the question is. For such a poor, impoverished country to be, you know, uh, using millions of dollars to uh, build these nuclear weapons, is that the right priority? Um, shouldn't the government uh, be held first and foremost uh, for its, uh, you know, the security of its people? I mean, the answer is absolutely yes. I don't think there's anyone who, you know, would say that uh, the Kim government uh, is, uh, you know, a model <laughs> or an exemplar of, of good, you know, governance and, and management of, of resources. Uh, but then the question becomes, you know, is it realistic uh, for the international community and especially those in non-proliferation community to, you know, continually uh, insist that North Korea abandon and destroy all of its nuclear weapons, given how much it has devoted resources to that? And I think the, the answer is it, it's good to have it as a long-term goal, but certainly we need more steps in the middle uh, to get there. Uh, we first need to have a freeze on some of these missile tests. Right. We need to figure out also uh, how many you know, people are working on this issue, because how do you actually remove the knowledge of building a nuclear bomb from a whole country? Um, and so there are technical questions, there are practical issues, um, you know, that I think really uh, constitute a, a, an urgent need for more of an arms control threat reduction conversation about at least freezing and you know, limiting the current threat that these nuclear weapons possess and also tracking how many have been developed. We don't actually even know. We have a, a rough idea, a range. It could be between 20 to 60 bombs, but we don't even know. Uh, so I think there's a lot that we can do in the interim, you know, as we look to really, um, you know, transform the, the bilateral relationship uh, and hopefully, um, you know, have a, a government that is more enlightened and responsive to its own people. Just in the last minute, uh, Jessica, I mean, why did Kim Jong-un and his predecessor father invest so much in nuclear weapons? You know, what are they trying to achieve there in terms of being a nuclear power? Some people have argued, well, look what happened with the Iraq, you know, Saddam Hussein didn't have a nuclear weapon and yet we invaded. So that was a signal mm -hmm. that you better have right. a nuclear weapon to prevent a U.S. invasion. So that's kind of on us, I suppose. 
But what's he trying to get out of having a nuclear weapon? So far, that's why the talks with mm. Trump broke down, that he wouldn't give up his nuclear weapon. So what kind of bargaining position does he really have, having diverted all these resources to the, his nuclear program? Mm. Well, I think, you know, it's uh, it's certainly the case that North Korea has to uh, come to grips with the fact that the sanctions that are levied against it at the U.N. Security Council level, as well as U.S. laws, are popular uh, because, uh, you know, uh, people do not think North Korea should uh, possess nuclear weapons. Now, this, uh, again, it, there is a, I think, range of, of ideas and, and proposals out there in terms of how we gradually reduce the threat of North Korea's nuclear weapons. You can continue to take a maximalist position, uh, like eradication of all of its nukes, or you could take a more uh, kind of gradual step-by-step -step approach, uh, as I just laid out. So I think there's that aspect. But to your question about why, uh, you know, it's it's, it's uh, certainly the case that North Korea is surrounded by bigger countries like China and Russia, uh, as well as, uh, you know, it is in technically still at war with the United States and sees, uh, you know, itself uh, in a very strategically vulnerable position. And so I think these weapons serve... Uh, as as a way to guarantee its um, you know security uh, and its existence really um, and so the 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 Gaddafi example uh, and Hussein example of course does not bode well in these conversations because countries see that and go hmm if I were to give up my nuclear weapons I guess I would be deposed so there is I think you know it it, it is hard to uh, have North Korea sort of unilaterally give up all of its nuclear weapons until we are ready to. Uh, also take uh, commensurate step-by-step -step measures to uh, allow for uh, more economic assistance and economic ties with South Korea. Well, Jessica Lee, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jessica Lee, who's a senior research fellow at the East Asia Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include U.S. foreign policy towards the Indo-Pacific region, with an emphasis on alliances and North Korea, and she's a non-resident senior associate fellow at the Asia-Pacific Leadership Network and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and has testified before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
Passionate 